Everything has a past. Everything. A person, an object, a word, everything. If you don't know the past, you can't understand the present and plan properly for the future. From Davida's Harp by Chaim Potok. Children gather around, come sit by the cannon fire. Come and join the conversation. Children gather around, if written works are your desire. Come and sit beside the flame of the cannon fire. Okay, so one of the things that I want to talk about with Heim Potok is the context in which he's writing, because I think it's important to consider the context in which any author is writing. Uh, death of the author is not a literary theory I prescribe to. There are two things that come up a lot in Heim Potok's work, because they were the things that he was dealing with and his community were dealing with for most of his life, and that is the issues of Zionism and the Holocaust. Um, and I want to talk about Zionism first because a lot of people don't understand what it is. And it's something that comes up a lot. And people tend to assume that Jews just support it, which is not true. I know a lot of Jewish people who do not support the state of Israel in the way it exists now and know a lot of theologists and people before the modern state of Israel which was established who did not want it to be established the way it was established or if they wanted it to be established at all. And we're not going to be talking about your opinion on it, right? No. Yeah. I, okay, so just for for our listeners' reference, we are not, don't ask, because we're not going to be talking about our opinion or Caitlin's, especially Caitlin's opinion on this, because it's none of your business. We love you, but it is none of your business. I. But I do want to talk about what it is, because I think that's something that a lot yeah. of people don't understand. Me included. Because yes. uh, yeah, Caitlin I, I gave had to, me a lecture. Right, I had to ask Caitlin about it too, yeah. Okay, so Zionism is, in the way that most people think of it, is the desire to build a Jewish state after World War II, um, which eventually happened in a fashion with the modern state of Israel. It was basically the idea of, like, we are not safe in Europe. We are not safe in the Americas. We are not in a place where we can express ourselves without fear of danger. So we want to create a place that is ours. And we want to do it in Jerusalem because that is our city. And that is where we have been. And that is our home. This was complicated because a lot of people didn't really consider Israel to be a literal place. They considered it to be, it's kind of like how a lot of Christians consider, except it was a literal place, but kind of how a lot of Christians consider the Garden of Eden to be more of a philosophical ideal than an actual physical place that existed. Theological ideal. Theological ideal. But the difference being that Israel was a, or at least a Hebrew state was something for a long time. If you've ever heard mention of the destruction of the temples, those were actual physical places in what is now nowadays considered to be the Middle East that were Jewish places that were owned by Jewish people. But Israel as an idea is the land given to Jews by God, or yeah. to the Hebrew people by God. Israel is the land of the chosen which is one of the reasons that I think Chaim Potok probably named The Chosen The Chosen, is because there is a lot of talk about Zionism and a potential uh, state of Israel in The Chosen. There's a huge debate that I had 
no idea was a thing until I read it and I was blindsided and I was like, Caitlin, they're going to kill each other over this debate about theology. What am I missing? And um, I didn't phrase it that way, but Caitlin and I are close enough that I felt comfortable that she wouldn't take offense if I asked her opinion about what Zionism was. Um, and so basically the debate that's going on in this book, which, as I keep saying, Chaim Potok is a really great intro to Judaism because he frames these things, he, he gives multiple perspectives, he gets multiple ideas, and he does it all in a very compassionate, non-judgmental way. From a yeah, he frames it from a third person perspective. Right, even though he is, a, even either. though yeah, even though he is a first person experience, he's experiencing this as a first person. Yeah, it's he not gives like it, a textbook. Yeah, it's, uh, I love all of these explorations of Judaism, and I'm going to show all of them. So Inch the Chosen, the two boys that we keep talking about, Danny and Reuben, but they have fathers. One is a rabbi and one is a scholar that is disliked by a lot of the rabbis in his community because he is very radical in his support of Zionism and his support of political movements that the more traditional members of his community don't really ascribe to. And the main conflict, which Zoe sent me a bunch of paragraphs to decode, was the main conflict is that Reuven's father, who is the more radical, wants the creation of a Zionist state directly because of the Holocaust, because he wants there to be a place that is chosen for the people that is recognized as a state by the world for Jewish people. The problem is on the side of Rabbi Saunders, who is uh, the other boy, Danny's father, is that Rabbi Saunders believes that if you were to do that, you would be getting recognition from the wrong people. Uh, or for specifically the wrong entity of that state, because to him, the United Nations can't decree Israel a state, the US and the UK and Palestine, if they wanted to, which that's something we're not going to talk about. But even if they supported that idea, their support would mean nothing because the person who defines Israel and gives it to the Jewish people is not a worldly organization. It is God. And so the creation of the Israel, the state of Israel cannot be truly created by anyone. Like, Israel is something that is to be strived for, but it can't, you, you the can't way, give it to yourself. Yes, you can't give it to yourself. And so that's a very, that's the theological debate that these two men and their sons are both trying to learn from. And they're trying to learn it from each other, and they're trying to learn it from their opponents which Haim Potok talks about, of course, in theological terms, because he is very focused on Zionism as a theological issue. Um, he doesn't forget that it's not just a theological issue, because there is a physical issue to do with Zionism, and that's who has the right to the land. And that's an important question to ask. But part of some Jew Jewish people's belief that the Jews do have a claim to that land comes from this theological debate. And it's important to recognize that it's not as cut and dry as all Jews saying, oh, we want to go to Israel and form the state of Israel. Haim Potok doesn't ever really let things be that dualistic. It's these people believe that the Jews have a right to Israel and these people don't. And this is why. And I think The Chosen is a really, specifically as a book, is a really good foundation for understanding Zionism, why it kind of why it came to be and why so many people in the Jewish community are still having conflict about it and having conflict about 
the state of Israel and its existence and its current physical and theological place in the world. Because we've said this before about Potok, he's really good at breaking down things into their human parts. In that, one, he takes this issue of Zionism and he explains it through these conversations that these boys have with their fathers. And it's a very thorough, very insightful explanation that's never exposition as much as it is understanding these characters and their relationship to this to this idea of Zionism. And I think the Chosen, I think the Chosen is a really good foundation for understanding Zionism. But I also think that the way he presents it is, it's impossible to be completely unbiased. But I think that his presentation of both sides of the argument is very helpful for seeing it in a more fair, equal way. Um, And the other thing he does is that these two characters who are on different sides of this debate and who argue with each other and who are very passionate about their arguments and passionate about what they believe to be the moral right or the, the philosophical or theological imperative are both depicted as very good men and very good people because both of them understand and help their communities outside of their own theological ideas. Rabbi Saunders is beloved by his community and the people he leads. And Reuben's father is well-respected in some circles. In some circles, he is considered very radical and people don't really appreciate them. But the character himself is never depicted as anything less than an intelligent, insightful, respectful, kind man. And I think that's really important in to lending what Chaim Hotak always seems to manage to lend to his narratives, which is a sense of real, genuine human connection. Because it's never as easy or as black and white as saying, oh, this person supports Zionism or this person does not support Zionism and so they're bad. It's there are people and they're complicated and they can support things that you disagree with on a fundamental level, but still be good people. And I'm not talking about disagreement in the sense of threats. I'm talking about disagreement in the sense of I don't agree with you and I'm not going to agree with you, but my disagreement with you does not affect the, the way I see you as a human being. And the ability of Haim Potok to sh- show these interactions in a way that doesn't undermine the humanity of either party is, I think, incredibly meaningful and incredibly significant. Because all of the opponents, regardless of their ideological or theological ideals, are human, with human lives and human responsibilities and they live up to that, no matter what they believe in. And it's with love that, that these characters all interact and disagree. And it's just, it blew my mind. Because you do not get that in a white American family. You just don't. If you disagree fundamentally, and you don't see the humanity on the other side, and, you don't, and you're not able to get that respect and that love given back to you from the other side, it's the end of that relationship. And, like, that ability... And it's something that's taught and something that's learned. Like, I feel like when I, I say, oh, I'm I'm from this Jewish culture and so I know this, it comes across as like, oh, I am Jew. This is my blood. <laughs> this is how I know this. But no, it's, <laughs> it, it's something that you're taught every day of your life. And so it is something that can be learned from because it's something that can be taught. And so 
one of the things that happens if you approach somebody with the belief that their opinion is worth being respected, which is a very big issue in our society right now in many different ways, then they will be more likely. And it doesn't happen immediately. Like, I'm not saying you should walk up to somebody and just assume that if you're nice to them, they'll be nice to you back. But if people are able to, especially if they're taught this from a young age, if it becomes important to respect someone else who's different from you, and if that is taught the way it is in so many Jewish communities, I'm not going to say all, there are some very traditionalist, radical, conservative Jewish, Jewish communities, just like there are of basically any group in the world. But if this is taught from a young age, it fosters a lot of understanding and compassion that we're not really taught. That is not to say that everybody's opinion should be respected. There are opinions that shouldn't be respected. And you guys, if you're listening to this, then you probably know which ones we're talking about. But just coming to a different conclusion that doesn't hurt people is completely different and should be respected. Just having different ideas on how the world should work is different than wanting someone dead for what or who they are. Yeah, the caveat that Caitlin and I are are always coming back to is both of these fathers mutually respected one another. They saw the value that the other was giving to the community, to the family, to the Jewish tradition, right? So they both were like, we come to different conclusions, but I respect and I love that you are giving your opinions showing your son what it means to be Jewish in your capacity, letting him grow in these manners. I disagree with how you're going about doing that, but he is growing up, right? And so they're, what they're teaching their sons is, I, I mutually love this boy's father for what he's doing, what he's bringing as a teacher, what he's bringing as a person, what he's bringing as someone who's Jewish, what he's bringing morally to the conversation. And that was happening from the Hasidic viewpoint towards the conservative or towards the Orthodox family and vice versa, right? And so it wasn't, Haim Potok wasn't um, saying that either side was being unreasonable. And he wasn't saying that one side made better decisions than the other. He was like, you can have these levels, these intense levels of disagreement, as long as the foundation of mutual love and respect and value is held. And that takes a lot of hard work to build up to that point, right? Because it takes generations of people saying, oh, this person in my community, I disagreed with them, but we saw each other's value. We were able to have conversations as long as that trust wasn't broken. And that needs to be taught. And so what Haim Potok showed in The Chosen was the sons were able to learn from the fathers and see the fathers actively participating in this difficult conversation, in this debate that actually impacted lives. And you don't see that level of interaction with, with white families with regards to like if someone has a moral disagreement, has an identity disagreement, has a philosophical, political disagreement, there's not the foundation of I see you as an individual, I see you as a full human, I see you as someone who brings value to the world. 
that's missing. And so when those debates, when those arguments come up and in families that don't have this active dialogue to get past and get through these moments of extreme chaos and <laughs> disruption, the relationships fall apart, right? And the conversation ends. And they're not fun conversations to have. Like none of the characters enjoy these moments of intense shouting, intense fighting, but they have the tools and they have the knowledge of where the fight is going to go and that the conversation is going to move forward. And both versions and, and all truths coming out in the conversation are going to be recognized and valued as something that adds instead of something that is stereotypical and detracts from, which is really important and really valuable. And, and again, I think only Pota could write something as profound as that and get it across as seamlessly without sounding like the lecture and get it across to the readers that this is actually how it happens, that these conversations, that progress happens, um, is that this is, this is the messy middle <laughs> that no one sees. Uh, you see the beginning where people might be viewed as ignorant or naive, and then you see the end where they're enlightened and progressive and can, can proclaim their truths and are much more open-minded. But you don't see the moment of growth that happens. And that moment of growth is not an easy thing to witness. It's, it's very messy. It's very, very, there's a lot of hurt that happens in that moment. And, and so I think, I think it's really, really awesome that Potok was able to bring that to our psyche. Another point about the way that Potok kind of considers argument that I think is really important and is, um, is kind of missing from current rhetoric and dialogue is the idea that the reason that these men mutually respect each other and the reason that they're able to argue in the way that they do and still come away feeling that they have been respected and that they have made some kind of progress is the fact that both of the arguments always come from very thought out, very considered viewpoints. Like they're, they are using their tradition to argue, but they are not using the fact that it is a tradition to argue. They're using uh, arguments based on their tradition, based on their learning. And they're using very rational, very thought out, very evidence-based arguments, as opposed to just saying that it should be so because it is traditionally so, which I think is something that our culture has a lot of issue with, is like the idea of the constitution. Uh, it's constitutional and thus, for, thus it is holy. Uh, founding fathers actually specifically thought or specifically Thomas Jefferson, who is problematic, but he had a pretty good idea, which is that the constitution should be rewritten every five years because that the world happened. changes and the seriously. Ser okay. That hasn't I, happened. Once. Ah, <laughs> correct. I had a conversation with my boyfriend a long time ago, but it stuck in my head because he just lost his mind when he found out that our constitution hasn't been rewritten because they, they, do it in England. They do that. They rewrite it. They they update it. They and it's still not as often as they should. But and he was like, well, maybe it's just because England is older. And I was like, no, it's not because England is older. 200 years ago was still 200 years ago. You know, 200 years ago, muskets, muskets were still common form of gun. And 
slaves were, you know, people were owned. So America being younger is not a freaking excuse for our constitution not being updated. <laughs> well, it's not an excuse for stagnation yeah. at all. It's ridiculous, you know? Um, this country has changed, and so the rules that govern it should change. Right, you know? and that's kind of one of the things that Chaim Potok really does well, is he says that arguments can change while people still preserve their traditions and preserve their values. And that's the point of having arguments and the point of researching and thinking through your arguments is under, is because if you can critically think about the way you are presenting an argument, then you're forced to look at it in ways you wouldn't necessarily otherwise. And then your argument may change, it may not, but at least you have the foundation to give a reason why it has not changed. Right. Think about the... No, oh man. Think about the Monty Python argument sketch, which is honestly one of the only sketches of theirs that has held up through time. He, the guy comes in wanting to have an argument and then and then says that uh, just contradicting me is not an argument. It's just contradictory and has to explain to the professional arguer that just contradicting you is not an actual argument. What he wants is a debate. And that's a, a lot of people don't get that a debate and an argument should be the same thing. An argument is not productive in any way. If the two sides of an argument are not coming to logical conclusions, whether they come to the same conclusion or not. If somebody is just contradicting you, then it's not an argument. It's just stupidity. And I also think just the idea of change and changing arguments really factors in well to the idea of a Jewish American identity. Because a lot of people see Jews as a very closed society because they do have their own neighborhoods and they do have their own communities. And they do follow a different culture than others. And I think that was especially prominent in Europe because Europe doesn't have that tradition in the way that America does of having groups of communities of different cultures all living in the same place. But just the idea of being able to make this just kind of the idea of being able to understand that those changes happen is a Jewish ideal that goes hand in hand with statements made by the granted rich white men, or at least property-owning white men that founded the country. But like going back to Thomas Jefferson, problematic dude, on his rotunda in, um, he has a fancy rotunda, which is like a gazebo, but made of stone, um, <laughs> at the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, DC, uh, the fourth panel says, we might as well require a man to wear still the coat when fitted him as a boy, a civilized society to remain ever under the regimen of their barbarous ancestors. Boy! Yeah. Yeah. He's basically saying, we have our traditions and those are good, but we can't expect our children to live the same lives as we do. And that's essentially the whole point of Chosen. Boy! Yeah. <laughs> um, and so even though the stereotype of Judaism is that it is this separate, very collective society, apart from everything else, Jewish ideals intersect with American ideals from the very beginning of what America is at least originally intended to be. And so Chaim Potok was not just a Jewish author, he was a Jewish American author. And I think that's important to remember. Yeah, and he addresses that more in the sequel to The Chosen, The Promise, where a um, rabbi, I believe a rabbi, definitely a scholar from Europe, who survived the Holocaust, comes into his community 
not Potok's community, but Ruben's community. And Ruben has to kind of learn like the reasoning behind what this person is teaching and how he's teaching it and why he's teaching it. And and it's the idea that, um, it, again, it's the idea that you can be Jewish and, and very different, but that there's still, you're still part of this ancient community that, that is living. And they're using the same text and they're using the same teachings and they're coming to very different conclusions. And they, they again, deal with trying to figure out which direction progress will take in this upcoming new integrated society post-1950, basically. And I think what's really important is, um, going back to what Caitlin said about using tradition as a tool to continue progressing as a society develops and as a culture develops, instead of having tradition kind of hinder you and, and only seeing tradition for a tradition and not not seeing it as a tool or as a as a way to use your perspective to understand your world. A critic, uh, Daniel Walden, said of Potok, he sees only one world, one organic interweaving of the totality of the human experience. He decided to forge a religious life out of what he calls provisional absolutes, quote unquote. Very simply, theology and behavior are organically related. A theology that is not related to a pattern of behavior is trivial, which if you're reading Chaim Potok's works, that statement is the perspective of everything that he analyzes through his characters. And I believe Potok said, what is needed is for Judaism to rebuild its core from the treasures of our past, use it with the best in secularism and create a new philosophy, a new literature a new world of Jewish art, a new community, and take seriously the meaning of the emancipation, which is really profound. He was an ordained rabbi. He was a scholar. He was writing in context with religious texts and with uh, previous scholars who had come to different conclusions. And he was very active in his um, religious and cultural life. It was more than just being an author and, and saying this is what my childhood was like for him. It was, y'all need to understand that, that we're not going anywhere. And, and you need to see the value that Jewish culture brings to a society because it, it brings a lot of value to it. And we can only improve by including everybody. And that is also a very American ideal in speaking of Jewish Americanism because the Jewish Americans... Because uh, historically, Jews have very have been very split off, very isolationist as a community. Um, yeah, but it's oh, I wanted to say this earlier, but yeah, it's to keep themselves safe. Yeah, honestly. I also want to say I want to go back to what you just said about we're not going anywhere. But first, I want to say that provisional absolutes is the most Jewish thing I've <laughs> ever heard in my life. Because that's basically saying it's absolute until we change our minds, <laughs> which is which is perfection. Um, but I also want to say that idea of we're not going anywhere goes, goes to another theme, which is pretty much omnipresent in any Jewish literature past the 1940s. And I, by saying that date, I think everyone knows what I'm talking about, which is the Holocaust. Um, Jewish literature and being and cultural identity is intrinsically tied to the Holocaust. 
and has been affected by it since the Holocaust happened. Um, Which one? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But specifically, Adolf Hitler's attempted genocide. I do want to make a note that I'm using the word Holocaust because it's the word that most people are familiar with. That's not what the Jewish culture calls the Holocaust. It's actually, the word Holocaust means to be destroyed by fire. And while many Jews were, yeah, the uh, whole culture wasn't. Right. So they don't want to be called, they, they don't want it to be called that because you, we're still here. Exactly. We call it the Shoah, which is Hebrew for uh, the great disaster or the great cataclysm. It's, it's, it's also Hebrew for my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the Shoah is a cataclysm. It's a disaster. But it's important that that distinction is made because the Jewish people were not destroyed by it. In fact, uh, considering that Hitler lost, he was destroyed by it. Um, uh, so, I mean, if he just stayed in art school, nobody would have wanted him to die. I'm just, I mean, maybe some professors, but that's every person. So the Holocaust is within Heimkel Talks, where he talks about it, he writes about it. The whole question of Zionism, which is the whole discussion that's happening in The Chosen, is based off of the fact that the Holocaust happened and the Jews did not feel safe in Europe, which is fair. So he talks about it, and even some of the stricter, more traditionalist, more um, closed-off characters, like the Hasidic rabbi, who is Danny's father, have these moments where they're talking about it, and this man, who is very closed-off and very... Uh, thoughtful and and quiet and uh, not doesn't really share his emotions with the world as much, breaks down weeping when he thinks about the Holocaust and what happened to his people because of this great cataclysm. And even though they, there are these moments, Chaim Potok never lets the Holocaust define what it means to be Jewish, which is something that happens a lot with people that are not Jewish, is you will, the two things that most people know about Jewish people is that the Holocaust happened and they have a thing called a bar mitzvah, which they tend to think is just the one thing, but there's also a bat mitzvah and mitzvahs are a whole other deal because it's actually just a word for a ceremony or a ritual. But Chaim Potok never lets that stand. He never lets he never lets the people in his books be encapsulated by the Holocaust. Or reduced to the reduced Holocaust. Reduced to the Holocaust. Yeah. Because he wants the world to know that the Jews are not... He, he doesn't victimize his own people. He understands that they have been victims, but he does not victimize his own people because there is so much more to their cultural identity than being victims of this one dude with a bad mustache. Like, he certainly mourns what happened, but it gives him fuel for his characters to then be successful. And be their own people and have these communities that are based on their own tradition, their own culture, and their own ideas that are independent of this tragedy that happened in the past. But he also, like uh, the quote that you just read, never lets it be forgotten either because he considers it core to the way that modern Jews understand themselves. And honestly, I have a really hard time with Holocaust stuff. I can't watch um, Schindler's List. I can't. Which is honestly devastating to me because it's just so good, but I'm never going to make you watch it if you don't want to. It's funny because my brother, uh, my brothers identify with their Jewish identity a lot. And my brother who wants to be a filmmaker, actually Schindler's List is a big impact on why he wants to be a filmmaker. 
and I just can't watch it. Um, but that's the whole thing is people I approach the Holocaust differently. There's no one definition of what it was, and it does not define the people who are affected by it. It is a part of the way that they learn about themselves, because ever since I was a kid, I've been aware that there are people in the world who could kill me because I happen to have a few genes in the quote unquote wrong place. But that's not who I am. It's not who any Jewish person is. It's something that is related to them, but it's not our identity. And I think that's something that I adore about Chaim Potok. Like for my brother, it's Schindler's List. For me, it's Chaim Potok. We get these things from different places, but we still learn from them. Um, we have diverged pretty far from his biography, but... Um, that's fair. It, that's fair. I mean, we're still talking about who he is. We're still talking about him. Right. That was more a segue to kind of return to, like, the, the bullet points. I would like to mention Chaim Potok not only wrote young adult literature, he wrote adult literature, but he also wrote children's books, and that also should be celebrated. He was he was writing for every aspect of a person and, and writing for everyone that he could. Being a child is just an aspect of a person. Yes. <laughs> it's an aspect that you carry with you. Yeah. Always. What? What are you talking I was never a child. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I was always a child. I, I still I don't remember being a child. So it's um, fine. one of the things that frustrates me and Zoe, considering how much we absolutely adore this man, uh, is that his the Chosen was the first book published by a major publisher to depict Orthodox Judaism in the U.S. As a reminder, it was published in 1967. There have been Jews in the United States for a lot longer than that. And most of the discussion that actually involved him was in the 1980s. A lot of the scholarship is from that time, and I think we need to create some new scholarship. Yeah, that's kind of what, where we're going for this, is because these authors will be rediscovered in a time, in a like moment in history history of literary criticism, and they're kind of forgotten. Like, we had that problem with Anna Akhmanova. I think the most recent scholarship that we can find on her was from, like, 2009, and it was very short, and most of the scholarship we found on her was from the 90s. And if we're going to really impact the canon, if we're going to blow this shit right, Ruben, sorry, that'll be bleeped. <laughs> <laughs> we need to make it so that these authors that are not, uh, well, the gatekeepers would like them to be in terms of identities, they don't need to be rediscovered. They need to be constantly talked and constantly talked about because now we have this explosion happening in uh, literary criticism with queer theory. And you can absolutely bring queer theory into conversations with Chaim Potok's The Chosen. I think it's absolutely paramount that you do because it, it just, it adds a new meaning to what he's written about. And there are just so many avenues that um, you can use his writing to to use as a way of introducing a new idea to uh, literary worlds. I would like to also mention that The Chosen, which was his first book, it won the Edward Lewis Wallant Award and it was nominated for the National Book Award, like right off the bat, like he entered the scene. <laughs> In his time, he entered the scene immediately and people were like, yes, we want to read more of him. So he was extremely popular and then he just fell out of favor for some strange reason. Like mm. I never heard of him. And some strange some reason. Some strange reason with quotes. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder what it was. And then uh the sequel to The Chosen the Promise won the Athenium Athenium? Athenium. Athenium Prize. Guys, they're coming for me. <laughs> oh no. 
If you hear um, sirens, sorry. I'm sure the <laughs> microphone is picking it up. It picks up my breathing. It's picking up the sirens. Um, and then the gift of Asher Lev won the National Jewish Book Award for fiction, which makes me really happy. It, the gift of Asher Lev. Asher Lev is a very complex uh, character. I identified more with the characters of, of The Chosen and of Davida's Harp in the beginning, but Asher Lev definitely added a new dynamic and a new perspective, and you really need to read like all of his works. Also, just a note about Asher Lev, because I don't know for sure if this is related, but it seems like it probably, knowing Chaim Kotak, it seems like he would make this kind of deep cut. The first known civil rights case in the North American continent made by European people was when a Jew named Asser Levy appealed to the New Amsterdam Colonial Council to, for the right to serve in the colonial army because they wouldn't let him because he was Jewish. And for, I, I just based on the fact that this was New York couple hundred years ago, and how intelligent and how well-read Chaim Potok was, and the fact that he loves making jokes like this, or not making jokes like this, but like making these deep cuts that nobody else would get, I'm pretty sure that he probably named Asher Lev after Asher Levy. I am not that intelligent or that well-read, and I would have done something like that. <laughs> so probably, honestly, just making a dig on myself there. But seriously, <laughs> that sounds exactly like something I would do. I, I really want his, his works to be required. <laughs> I, I really, I like, there's nobody, I think, that could not benefit from having Chaim Potok's literature in your life. Nazis, He's one maybe. Of a kind. I mean, if they actually learned something from it. Yeah, but what if they ever actually learned anything? Ooh, call out post. Call out post to neo Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Nazis, regular old Nazis. Those are a thing that exists again. Have we to quote John Mulaney, yeah. I'm not a fan of these new Nazis. And you may them. quote me on that. Well, we are. Have we reached all the bullet points? I think so. Is that it? Yeah, um, I guess we have to do the sign-off now. So that's the end of part two of Chaim Potok. For making and recording our theme song, we would like to thank Alan Hardison for drawing and creating our banner art we would like to thank Brittany Barrel. if you want to reach us or find out more about us you can find us at cannonfirepodcast.com you can email us at cannonfirepodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on our social media on facebook and instagram it is at cannonfirepodcast and on twitter it is at cannonfirepod is there anything else that i'm forgetting Oh, yes. As you continue learning about these wonderful, wonderful, unspoken geniuses <laughs> that are getting a spotlight, please remember that Western grammar is a white colonial construct and pronunciation actually matters <laughs> in terms of <laughs> you need to pronounce words the way that the original language and the people who use that word pronounce it. Don't it's chime. It. Yeah. <laughs> not chime. Chime. Not, not chime. <laughs> it's... Chaim. Shanika. Shanika. Shanuka. I'm done. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. Oh my God. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.